following a transfer. From atop the lowest state theater building, Tales of intrigue, adventure, and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Chester Langfield. Today's episode, H.P. Lovecraft's and the Mountains of Madness. The frozen wastes of the Antarctic continent. Men of science braving an unknown and unforgiving world. An expedition to the ends of the earth resulting in death and madness. Tonight, Dark Adventure Radio Theater reveals the grim and terrible causes behind the dreadful demise of the Peabody Lake Expedition of Miskatonic University. For the first time, the strange, unimaginable truth of the ill-fated expedition's discoveries are revealed by one of its few survivors. Hear the terrible secrets... Hear the terrible secrets frotic in... At the Mountains of Madness! But first, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, when you smoke Florida Lee cigarettes, you enjoy all the rare goodness of choice Turkish and mild sun-dried domestic tobaccos. For the tobaccos that go into Florida Lee are never parched or toasted. Our method of scientifically applying heat guarantees against that. If you haven't smoked Florida Lee lately, compare their fresh, mild delight with the sting and burn of dusty, dry cigarettes. Smoke Florida Lee, then leave them. If you can. Ladies and gentlemen, today, Professor William Dyer is with us to recount the heretofore untold true story behind the Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition of 1930 and its tragic results. Today, he shares with us the full tale of what happened, including details considered too shocking for release to the public. Professor Dyer, why have you decided to come forward now? The discoveries we made in the Antarctic and the tragedies that followed have left those of us who were there with the conviction that further Antarctic exploration is too dangerous. You may have heard of the uh, Starkweather Moor expedition. That's from Chicago's Field Museum, isn't it? Yes, that's right. The Starkweather Moor expedition is preparing to set forth on yet another expedition to the extreme south, and we see it as our responsibility to come forward with a full story, unbelievable though it may be, and provide the full details of our expedition's demise. Professor, you realize some of your claims will strain the credulity of our listeners. Indeed I do. I can only tell you what happened as I saw it with my own eyes. Very well, Professor. No doubt. Listeners will recall hearing on this very station the news coverage of the expedition and its auspicious beginning. Worldwide Wireless News, September 2nd, 1930. Miskatonic University launches a scientific expedition to the Antarctic. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. 
A team from Massachusetts Miskatonic University embarked today on a research expedition to the frozen South Pole. Leading the expedition are Professors Peabody, Lake, Atwood, and Dyer. Professor Lake, what are you hoping to find? Uh, good evening, Nathan. You know, as perhaps you know, uh, hundreds of millions of years ago, Antarctica was a temperate place brimming with flora and fauna. Uh, we plan to use special apparatus developed by our colleague, Professor Frank Paybody, to drill into the ancient rock for samples that will uh, tell us more about the life that once lived on this largely unknown continent. Good luck, Professor. I hope you have a warm parka. <laughs> I do. Thank you. The professors are accompanied by seven graduate students, nine mechanics, and a pack of 55 Alaskan sled of 55 Alaskan sled logic equipment. The expedition will carry four aeroplanes, carefully designed for landing on snow and ice. The Brig Arkham and the Bark Miskatonic will carry the expedition through the Panama Canal to Hobart, Tasmania, where the expedition will take on its final supplies. From there, they'll sail through iceberg-laden waters until they reach McMurdo Sound in Antarctica, where they will set up their base camp. The expedition will then assemble airplanes to travel to the frozen continent's interior. We wish them Godspeed in their voyage to the unknown. Worldwide Wireless News, November 10th, 1930. Miskatonic Expedition lands on Antarctic continent. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. Scientists from Arkham's Miskatonic University landed yesterday on Ross Island in Antarctica and set up a base camp for the expedition's future work. Professor Atticus Lake joins us now by special wireless hookup from the bottom of the earth. Professor Lake, can you tell our listeners what you see? And tell us, Professor, how's the weather down there? Yeah, it's a nice day. Uh, 21 degrees of mercury. Not much wind. Uh, a bit like a New England winter. Ha <laughs> ha, thanks, Professor. Once base camp is fully established, the expedition plans to take geologic samples from nearby mountains before flying some 700 miles south to set up an advanced camp. News, November 21st, 1930. Miskatonic Expedition presses on through the Antarctic. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. The Miskatonic University Antarctic Expedition has made new progress from their advanced base camp. With the use of their experimental ice melting and drilling equipment, the expedition has been able to excavate numerous fossils, proving conclusively that life was once abundant in this now lifeless place. The next voice you hear will be that of the expedition's leader and chief biologist, Professor Lake. In addition to discovering fossils, expedition member Professor Frank Peabody, accompanied by graduate students Gedney and Carroll, climbed to the summit of Mount Nansen, one of Antarctica's tallest peaks at 13,350 feet above sea level. The expedition plans to use their aeroplanes to take samples from many parts of the southernmost continent, helping us to better understand the prehistory of this unknown world. As we get further news of the expedition, you know you'll hear it first on Worldwide Wireless News. Worldwide Wireless News, January 6, 1931. Arkham scientists fly over South Pole. This is Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. 
Scientists from Miskatonic University flew directly over the South Pole today in two of the expedition's aeroplanes. Buffeted by high winds, the expedition was forced to ground its planes for over an hour. But the intrepid scientists built a snow shelter for the craft and before long were in the skies again. The expedition's Professor Peabody. While the sudden storms of the Antarctic summer have proved difficult for the expedition's aeroplanes, the scientists say they're well supplied and in high spirits. Discovery of a highly unusual fossil sample has led biologist Professor Lake to change the expedition's itinerary in order to explore regions northwest of their current position. This fossil in question may be a footprint of sorts from an era hundreds of millions of years before such highly evolved life was thought to exist. The search for similar fossil specimens will lead them to regions of Antarctica never before seen by human beings. Whatever they may find beneath the polar ice, Worldwide Wireless News will be there. And indeed, Worldwide Wireless was there for the dramatic and terrible news as it unfolded on that distant sheet of ice. Wireless News, January 22nd, 1931. Scientists make dramatic discoveries near South Pole. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. Researchers from Miskatonic University have discovered what may be the tallest mountains on the planet. While flying in airplanes to look for rare geologic samples, Miskatonic's Professor Atticus Lake sent back this dramatic radio transmission. Mechanical problems with one of the aeroplanes caused Lake and his team to land on a glacier at the foothills of the mighty peaks. While mechanics worked on repairs, the scientists had a look around. Dyer, mountains surpass anything in imagination. Atwood used the autolite. Tallest peak over 34,000 feet. Queer skyline effects. Uh, regular sections of cubes must be some kind of crystallization clinging to highest peaks. A bit of the poet there as the awestruck scientists look on look on mighty peaks never by man. But as the news broadcasts would report, the expedition's greatest discoveries were still to come. Worldwide Wireless News, January 23rd, 1931. Antarctic paleontologists strike pay dirt. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News. Researchers from Miskatonic University, working near the South Pole, followed up yesterday's discovery of what may be the Earth's largest mountains with a treasure trove of fossils. After melting through a layer of thin, wind-blown ice, the team began drilling the Antarctic rock for fossil samples. Species ranging from the Oligocene clear back to the Ordovician. It's incredible! Wind is terrible. Let's down in the community. 
have a live connection now with Professor Dyer, the team's geologist, at the expedition's advanced camp some 300 miles from the cave. Professor Dyer, can you hear me? It's quite windy here, Nathan. Can you speak up? Of course. Uh, Professor, can you explain to us, in layman's terms, what findings in the cave mean? What does it mean? Well, there's never been anything like it. Perhaps in this part of the world, life forms were able to avoid extinction and coexist in a manner we've never seen. Geologically, but biologically, it changes everything we know about the evolution of life on the planet. Exciting news indeed, but more startling announcements have come in. The following broadcast from Professor Lake was just picked up by our radio receivers. We found more prints. This time in our key slate. discovery ended centuries ago. This breaking news from the Antarctic stands to challenge what we know of our planet and the history of life upon it. Thirty-four minutes later, we received another transmission from the distant south. So, 
I'm sorry to interrupt, Professor. A crinoid? Uh, yes. It's an ancient form of marine animal with many segmented feeding horns. Some species look almost like uh, feathery plants, but they're animals capable of swimming and moving along the sea floor. I see. Please continue. Professor, it sounds absolutely monstrous. What is it? It's incredible, Professor. What do you call them? <laughs> I asked Link the same question. Their fantastic qualities remind him of mythological creatures a colleague of ours in the English department has described, creatures mentioned in certain ancient books. Link has taken half jokingly to calling his specimens by the same name. He calls them the Elder Things. <laughs> it's unbelievable. What does it all mean, Professor? News, January 25th, 1931. Antarctic team unreachable by radio. Rescue mission underway. This is Nathan Reed reporting. After yesterday's shocking news of strange fossil discoveries in the Antarctic, Professor Lake's advance camp has been unreachable by radio. Earlier, we reached the expedition's Professor Dyer at his camp, some 300 miles from where Professor Lake found the mysterious fossils. Lake's last transmission reported bad winds last night. Does Lake's team have a backup radio, Professor? Yes, Nathan, they have four. Professor, is this a rescue operation? Godspeed, Professor Dyer. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, we go to a live transmission from the team on its way to Professor Lake's last known location. Professor Dyer, can you hear me? Can you see Professor Lake's camp? Uh, yes, there are some dark spots on the ice. Uh, that, that may be where the drill is. I think it's a mess in there. We'll go to the landing and let you know if everything's alright. Out. Worldwide Wireless News, January 26, 1931. Disaster strikes Antarctic Expedition. 11 confirmed dead. I'm Nathan Reed for Worldwide Wireless News with sad news tonight from the Antarctic. A brutal storm tore through the advanced camp of the Miskatonic University team. At present, there are 11 confirmed dead with one team member missing. Savage Antarctic winds, estimated in excess of 100 miles an hour, demolish shelters and tents built at the foothills of a massive mountain range discovered by the team earlier this week. We received the following transmission from Professor Dyer, whose rescue team arrived at the demolished camp this morning. Such a tragic ending to an expedition that seemed on the brink of unveiling an exciting new world of scientific discoveries. Professor Dyer reported that the unusual fossil samples found earlier this week were all but destroyed in the storm, although remaining fragments seem to corroborate Professor Lake's descriptions. The rescuers plan to continue to search the area by aeroplane for the still-missing scientist before flying back to the expedition's home base at McMurdo Sound. We, here at Worldwide Wireless News, extend our heartfelt condolences to the families of these brave explorers. A terrible tragedy that saddened the world. But today we'll learn the astonishing details of what really happened in those frozen mountains. Professor Dyer, I gather the information you gave the news reporters about what happened in Professor Lake's camp was not completely correct. No, the news accounts themselves are accurate, save what we omitted from our final broadcasts. Those of us who survived agreed that there were certain details the public need not and ought not know. And the details of what Danforth and I saw the following day we had planned to take to the grave. And now you've changed your mind. The Starkweather Moor Party is organizing with a thoroughness far beyond anything our outfit attempted. If not dissuaded, they will get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic and melt and bore until they bring up that which may end the world we know. 
Early in the morning, after the terrible storm, we left my camp in our aeroplane en route to Lakes Camp in the foothills of the mountains. Hang on, it's going to be rough with these gales. I'm taking you down a couple of thousand feet. I, I think you're right, McTyre. Professor, look! What is it, Larson? There, at 11 o'clock, the mountains! God! Look at the size of them! I've never seen anything Strange shapes rising up like spikes. Like... I don't know what. Look! Above the snow line on the black part below the summit. What are those? Those must be the cube shapes Lake radioed about. They look almost like buildings. Like ruins of some kind. They're so... The effect was that of a cyclopean city with no architecture known to man or human imagination, with vast aggregations of night-black masonry embodying monstrous perversions of geometrical laws. It's a mirage. I don't think so. It should be. Look, up ahead. There's the camp. Do you see them? There's no movement. Where are they? Those patches of darkness. Is that blood on the ground? Uh, it's got to be fuel, or... Oh, our Father, who are heaven hallowed be thy do you, do you see anyone moving down there? I don't even see the dogs. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. What on earth happened here? McTie, find a place to set down. We'll look on foot. I don't want to go. We are all going. They may need our help. We break into twos. Uh, Sherman, you go with uh, McTie and Peabody. Stick together. Now call out if you find anyone. For now, no one leaves the camp. It was as we have told the world. Indeed, our only deception was in what we did not, dared not tell. The dark spots we'd seen from the airplane were indeed blood. The reddened snow spoke of incredible violence. We quickly realized something terrible had taken place, but... There were no bodies to be found. We divided into groups to search for survivors. Danforth and I found tent cloths and parkas, deliberately cut apart and reconfigured as if someone were trying to suit them to some other unguessable purpose. This is crazy. One of them must have gone mad. Turned on the others. Don't you think, Professor? It wasn't just one. What was that? Let's go. Professor! What is it? We found them. Are, are they...? You should see for yourself. They're in the airplane shelter. We had reported that the storm had left the bodies in a terrible condition, unsuited for the long voyage home. But how could we describe what we truly saw? Good Lord. There's more of them here. Williams, take Mr. Sherman outside. Ropes, uh, take some photographs. They were dead, of course. But worse than that, they were frightfully mangled. Men and dogs all thrown about together. Most appeared to have been strangled, some terribly lacerated. The fatter, healthier men and dogs had solid masses of their tissue cut away, as if by... I can barely bring myself to say it. As if by a butcher. 
In the snow around the remains, we found traces of salt, with its hideous implication. Shards of clothing were roughly slashed, but they offered no meaningful clues as to what had taken place. Well, look here, men. There are strange impressions here in the snow. They, they look like the fossil footprints that Lake had found. So what? That's a fresh print in the snow. Well, Lake was hauling those things he found around, those elder things. I count ten men in here, Professor Dyer. Thirty-five dogs. So there are two men and two dogs missing? It looks that way to me. McTie, take Larson, Ropes, and Williams and keep searching. The rest of us will bury the dead. Bury them? Shouldn't we take them back with us? And explain it how. Would you want to see your loved ones like that? We were digging a mass grave for the men, another for Lake's dogs. It was heartbreaking, terrible work, cold, light snow falling. Listen to those dogs. You suppose they know their sled mates are dead? No. Sherman found more of those star-shaped soapstones Lake talked about. The dogs can't stand them. What is it, Larson? Have you found survivors? No. We found graves. Graves? Whose graves? You'll have to see this for yourself, Professor. It was yet another baffling sight. Young Larson was right. What he had found could only be called graves, six of them, and buried in each, standing upright, was one of the Archean fossils that Lake had found, one of the elder things. Each grave extended nine feet down into the ice and was topped with a star-shaped mound of snow marked with a pattern of dots. McTie and Ropes exhumed one of the things, and it was exactly as Lake had described, down to the broken, starfish-like appendages at what I assumed to be its top. Criminy, what a stench. This thing isn't a fossil. It, it feels like leather. Not all fossils are petrified. Lake said they were leather and tough. Why would Lake's men bury them? To get rid of the stink. There are only six. No other burials? No, we haven't seen any. Lake radioed there were 14, right? That's right. What happened to the rest of them? The graves contained only those specimens which Lake had described as being damaged or incomplete. We decided to send McTie, Sherman, and Peabody up in an airplane to search for the missing men while the light remained good. The rest of us continued to explore the remains of the camp. Danforth and I were at what had been their provisions tent. It had been reduced to tatters, but not merely by the wind. It had been deliberately cut apart. A heap of tin cans were piled on the ground. They were mangled, torn apart in the most unlikely way, in the most unlikely places. What on earth were they doing? It's as if they didn't know how tin cans worked. Look, the salt's gone. Hmm? The salt's gone from the larder and the stove fuel. They must have taken the salt to the aeroplane shelter to... Oh, merciful heavens. Look here, Danforth. Matches. There was a small pile of matches, some burnt, some not, some broken, but all assembled into a strange little formation. Professor, this is madness. Without a doubt, the most disturbing discovery for me was Lake's dissecting tent. It was one of the last tents we entered, as it appeared entirely intact. 
Peabody was with me then as we went inside the tent to see what had happened. Now let's go in here, Tyler. The way I see it, the third specimen we observed must have been the one Lake dissected. The others look torn up, but that one was dissected methodically. They're tough as nails and... My God. At first we didn't understand what we were seeing. Strewn about the room were the remains of a dog and a human being, each crudely and inexpertly dissected down to its component parts. Organs, joints, skin, all neatly separated and placed incomprehensibly about the room. Four eyes, two human and two canine, were neatly arranged on a side table. Who could do such a thing? I was fascinated by the blotted and smudged medical illustrations laid out on the table as if the perpetrator were teaching himself mammalian anatomy. Dyer, the scalpels, all the surgical tools are gone. So is the stove. This, this poor soul's the eleventh man. Who does that leave missing? Well, Gatney. Lake's graduate student, tall fellow. He climbed Mount Nansen with us. Do you think he could have done this? No. Not all of it. Dyer, look at these matches. Another curious litter of matches lay on the snow floor of the dissecting tent. Peabody and I removed the remains and buried them with the other dead. By the time our search plane returned, we were all on edge, trying to convince ourselves we were witnesses to a scene of mass hysteria. While the other men huddled together in one of Lake's two functional airplanes, Peabody McTie and I, as senior team members, convened a meeting inside one of our airplanes. Do you have any ideas, gentlemen? I think it started with Lake's dogs. The dogs? How do you mean? They were together in an enclosure, but the snow wall was knocked down. By the wind? It wasn't the windward side. It looks like it was knocked down from the inside. The dogs were trying to get out. Something got them going. Our dogs certainly don't like it here. Go on. The dogs are frenzied, uh, running out of control. This added strain is too much for one of the men, his nerves frayed by this hellish wind. He snaps and starts killing the dogs. Somebody tries to stop him, it turns violent, and soon they're all in on it. What? It could happen. Then they stop to bury the elder things? Systematically dissect one of the men and one of the dogs? And then dismantle the drill and mechanical equipment? What's that about the equipment? Almost everything mechanical has been half torn apart. Disassembled, really. I mean, paint stripped off the planes, nuts removed from the bolts. The drill's been dismantled. One of the plane engines was taken apart. Couldn't it have been the storm? The storm? I've never seen the wind take machinery apart and to see how it works. What are you saying? This is more than mad dogs and madmen fighting. Books are gone, food is gone, equipment and tools are gone. The sleds are gone. Flesh. Meat from the bodies is gone. You think Gedney did this? and set out on his own with three sleds and one dog? No, I don't. Did you see this, Dyer? Sure, it's the soapstone the lake found in the cave. You're a geologist. Does that strike you as a natural rock formation? No. No, it doesn't. Someone made this. And hid it in a cave 65 million years ago? Nothing erodes to look like this, McTie. Look at the little dots on it. They're in a deliberate pattern. And it should look familiar. That's the same pattern of dots above the graves of the Elder Things. Is there no sign of the other Elder Things? The, the undamaged ones? No sign of them. Hmm. The 
as if they just vanished into thin air. Now, don't start in with your mumbo-jumbo, Peabody. This from a man who says madmen in a storm did this. Do you have a better answer? What do you think, Frank? Really? I'm not inclined to say. Now look here, Peabody. Easy, McTie. Frank? Bill, there are books. You know the ones I mean. And Miskatonic. You've read them. I've read them. Poor Lake read them. With their fantastical stories of the elder things. Earth's first masters who created Earth life as a joke or a mistake. I know your friend, Wilmoth, takes them seriously, but I've always thought of them as mad ramblings, as occult poetry. But maybe they're not allegories. Being here, seeing this, I can't help but think perhaps they're much more literal than we might have thought. Maybe the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazrad was right. And those ancient tales reveal secrets not meant for mankind. What books? What are you talking about? All right, that's enough. I think we can agree that we can't explain what happened here. I say we radio the outside and tell them what happened, but vaguely. There, there was a storm. The expedition perished. We'll provide no details. We'll take one last flight to look for Gedney, and then we all fly back to McMurdo Sound. But we can't just pretend this madness here didn't happen. No, it happened, McTai. But if we can't explain it, I think the less said, the better. Nobody should ever know what really happened to you. Professor Dyer, your tale is a shocking one. It's hard to believe after what we've heard that there were yet more terrors in store for you. I wish it weren't true, Mr. Langfield, but our horrifying discoveries were just beginning. What happened next? The following morning, as soon as weather conditions permitted, Danforth and I left the others to search for Gedney by air. We thought that with the plane empty of the other men and equipment, we could gain enough altitude to see what was on the other side of the mountains. Wasn't that a dangerous thing to do, Professor Dyer, given the circumstances? Absolutely. But in spite of the prevailing horrors, we were left with enough sheer scientific zeal and, and adventurousness to wonder about the unknown realm beyond those mysterious mountains. Geologically, there's nothing else like this on Earth. I, I had to go. Danforth and I bundled in our heaviest furs and climbed in our airplane to a pass leading over the mountains. What we saw matched Lake's description perfectly. Those towering peaks had stood basically undisturbed for perhaps 50 million years. But it was the mountainside tangle of cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths which fascinated and disturbed us most. Tell us about them. As Lake had said, the edges of the cubes were crumbled and rounded from untold eons of savage weathering. Young Danforth was an avid reader of bizarre material and mentioned that certain scenes reminded him of, of passages in the works of Edgar Allan Poe. In fact, he claimed to have heard in the wind itself that strange sound from Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, Tekalili. For me, it brought to mind the ruins at Machu Picchu or Kish. But how to account for such things in this place was, frankly, beyond me. I felt queerly humbled as a geologist. The cave mouths were square or semicircular, as if the natural orifices had been shaped to greater symmetry by some magic hand. Professor, hand me the binoculars and take the controls. It's the same. Look around the mouth of that cave. They're dots. They're the same as the soapstones and the graves. Look, 
Look! It's probably just a coincidence of uh, a formation that... Danforth, I think you're right. It's... It's like a dream, Professor. There's something unnatural here, some ancient lurking evil. Steady on, Danforth. Don't let your imagination carry you away. Do you see that pass looming up ahead? Beyond that pass lies a world no human eye has ever seen. In a moment, we shall look into an elder, alien Earth without the stain of man. What's our altitude? 23,570 feet. Here we go. Can you believe it? As the plane flew through the pass and crested that momentous divide, we beheld a limitless, tempest-scarred plateau covered with an endless labyrinth of colossal, regular and geometrically and architecturally arranged stone masses which reared their crumbled and pitted crests above the glacial sheet. The monstrous sight seemed a violation of natural law. Here, 20,000 feet high, in a climate deadly to habitation since mankind was little more than an ape, thrived a cyclopean city of obscene proportions, tearing upward through the ice, hideous and menacing. It's a city. It goes on for miles. The foothills, they're covered with the cube. Buildings. Look, those walls must be 100, 150 feet high. The buildings varied in size. The general shape of these things tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced, though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices whose five-pointed ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications. In the middle of the city, a vast, circular gulf, perhaps once the base of a great tower, opened to unthinkable blackness below. The construction was magnificent. Arches were used expertly, and, and domes probably existed in the city's heyday. In many places, the buildings were totally ruined, and the ice sheet deeply riven from various geologic causes. A wide swath, wholly free from buildings, cut across from the foothills all the way to the other side of the plateau where the mountain Professor, could that have been a river? It looks like it. Where did it flow to? There are probably caves under the city, maybe a drainage to an underground sea. It's crazy. The city just keeps going. What do you think? 50 miles south? At least. Maybe maybe 30 to the east. Look, there are carvings on the river embankment. Professor, we don't have a lot of fuel. We should head back. We could land. Go on foot. I'm sorry, sir, but are you out of your mind? Don't tell me you don't want to see this place, Danforth, to know, to know who or what built it. No one will ever believe it. We'll take photos and make sketches. We'll document it for the others. Danforth guided the plane back towards the pass and brought it down on a snowfield devoid of obstacles and well-suited for a swift takeoff. We loaded ourselves with supplies and headed downhill over the crusted snow towards the stupendous stone labyrinth before us. The air was very thin at this altitude, but the absence of wind made the going more bearable. We approached a roofless rampart and at last touched its weathered cyclopean blocks. I felt deeply affected, as if I'd established an unprecedented and almost blasphemous link with forgotten eons normally closed to our species. It, it was built from irregularly shaped blocks of Jurassic sandstone, most six feet tall, eight feet wide, and five feet thick. 
We wish Peabody had been with us. Perhaps his engineering skill could have explained how such titanic blocks could have been handled in the unbelievably remote age when the place was built. Professor, we can climb in. Follow me. There's carvings on the wall inside. Yes, I, I can see something on the wall. Ooh, careful there. There, careful, sir. The ice is slick down here. Merciful heavens. Danforth, look at it. It's a mural. It keeps going and going this way. It goes on this way, too. What exquisite workmanship. Such detailed stonework. Shine, shine your torch over here. So this must be a picture of... The life and history of an unimaginably ancient time. Get the camera out. We have to take pictures. Look there, Professor. In that panel, it's more of the dot patterns. It, it must be writing in some forgotten language. A pre-human language. The hallway is blocked with ice down here. We'll have to turn back. If only we had Peabody's ice-melting gear. The buildings toward the river had less ice in them. What do you mean? We might have better luck at ground level. More of the structures might have survived. I felt a wash of terror flood through me, but my curiosity, like Danforth's, was irresistible. We made our way further into the city proper. The upper wind shrieked vainly and savagely through the skyward peaks, yet the air was deadly still as we walked. Between us and the churning vapors to the west lay that monstrous tangle of dark stone towers. It was a mirage in solid stone, and were it not for the photographs, I would still doubt that such a thing could be. In places, we could see through the transparent parts of the ice sheet to the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled stone structures below. It began to take its toll on our nerves. What was that? What? Something's moving over there, in the shadows. <laughs> Shine your torch. There is nothing there. Uh, they left their prints in the snow. Who did? The, the things. The elder things from camp. They survived. They, they've come here. N nothing's been here for half a million years, Danforth. Pull yourself together. Let's concentrate on our work. It will calm our nerves. Collect some rock samples along that wall. When, when we analyze them, we can determine the age of this place. Professor? Professor Dyer? Danforth, come here. I think I found the perfect opening for us. It's great. I'll bet that a bridge used to connect right there at that archway. The floor inside may be intact. If we could climb up this rubble here, we could go inside. Sir, I'm not sure we should. We're men of science, Danforth, and this is the greatest opportunity for discovery we'll ever have. Do you hear that? It seems to be coming from inside the building. Steady on, Danforth. It's the wind rushing through all these passageways. We, we can't be deterred by phantoms and imaginings. Follow me. Uh, 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 
can you? Watch yourself. All right. Come along, Danforth. There's a solid floor up here. I'm losing my grip. Take off your mitten and take my hand. Just around the edge. There we are. Thank you, Professor. Well, at least there's no ice in here. The corridor goes as far as I can see. Hmm. The floor looks like slabs of Archean slate. What are you doing? Bits of paper to mark our trail. Like breadcrumbs. I guess the air is still enough. Good idea. That's the spirit, Danforth. How far do you think it goes? With the bridges and tunnels, we could probably go on for days. These passages might connect through the entire city. There's no sign of disaster. It's more like the place was abandoned. It, it seems like whoever built this place took their belongings and, and left the buildings behind. Hmm. Maybe they knew the ice would come. This is amazing. The sculpted murals here are perfectly preserved. Take a photograph. That's the end of our film. The structures were filled with mural sculptures which tended to run in horizontal bands three feet wide, arranged from floor to ceiling in alternation with bands of equal width given over to geometrical arabesques. The technique was mature, accomplished, and aesthetically evolved to the highest degree of civilized mastery, though utterly alien in every detail to any known art tradition of the human race. In certain rooms, the dominant arrangement was varied by the presence of maps, astronomical charts, and other scientific designs on an enlarged scale. It sounds fantastic, Professor, to see such things. It was. But I don't mean to arouse any curiosity in those who believe me. It would be tragic if any were allured to that realm of death and horror by the very warning meant to discourage them. What did the murals depict? The subject matter of the sculptures came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation and contained a large proportion of evident history. There could now be no further merciful doubt about the nature of the beings that had built and inhabited this monstrous dead city millions of years ago when man's ancestors were primitive archaic mammals and vast dinosaurs roamed the tropical steppes of Europe and Asia. What were they? The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of this city were wise and old and had left certain traces in rocks, even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had advanced beyond plastic groups of cells. Rocks laid down before the true life of Earth had existed at all. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt, the originals of the fiendish elder myths, which things like the Pinacotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. What do you mean, Professor? They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when Earth was young, beings whose substance an alien evolution had shaped and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. And to think, only the day before, Danforth and I had actually looked upon fragments of their fossilized remains and, and that poor Lake and his party had seen them in their entirety. You realize some will dismiss your reporting as madness. Of course. Were it not for the snapshots soon to be made public, I would refrain from telling what we've found and inferred lest I be confined as a madman. Let others judge when they see the photographs I shall publish. 
You were able to learn the history of these things solely from the carvings? It's a wonder we deduced so much in our short time there and through our subsequent study of the photos and sketches. No one set of carvings told more than a fraction of their story, nor did the details unfold in anything approaching the proper order. Th their story, as our crude understanding would have it, is as follows. Myth or fact, the star-headed things came to a lifeless Earth from cosmic space. They seem to be able to traverse interstellar ether on their membranous wings. They rule the Earth for unthinkable eons. They could move on land, swim, or fly. And their toughness suited them to the, even the deepest ocean. And here they made great cities under the sea. Under the sea they first created life on Earth. Using methods known to them, they first made food, and later multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of, of molding their tissue into all sorts of temporary organs under the hypnotic control of the elder things. And these formed the ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were no doubt the Shuggaths, whispered of in Alhazred's frightful Necronomicon, though he never could have imagined that such things existed on Earth except in drug-induced dreams. And these things, these, these shuggaths, built their cities? Indeed. The elder things appeared content to let byproducts of their first life forms evolve, and indeed all life on Earth evolved from their creation of simple living matter. They continued to build and evolve their cities with the work being done by these shuggaths. The things were truly hideous and filled Danforth in particular with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like a, an agglutination of bubbles roughly 15 feet in diameter, but their shape and volume shifted constantly as they would spontaneously throw out organs of sight, hearing, and speech as directed by their masters. It's no wonder Danforth hated them. They sound horrifying. Yes. They served the Elder Things for a length of time that's almost unimaginable to us, but the Shuggaths apparently became more intelligent, and eventually rebellions and uprisings plagued the Elder Things, particularly once the Shuggaths adapted to life on land. There were ample images of Elder Things, slime-coated and heads torn off, destroyed in conflicts with the Shuggaths. Did these Shuggaths destroy their civilization? What happened to them? The Shuggaths were again subjugated, but it's not entirely clear from our brief study of random murals what happened next. We saw the continents of Earth moving into their current positions, and their maps showed fewer and fewer of their cities. This affected Danforth quite deeply. The city wherein was sacred to them. It's the place where they first came when they arrived on Earth. Their first and last bastion. They have here sacred stones preserved from their first settlement under the sea. And it stands at the foot of the unholy mountains which even they feared. He could tell all that just from looking at their carvings. Yes. Their murals were uncanny and communicating subtleties which even language would struggle to impart. Look, here you can see the snow and ice are encroaching on the city. There's almost no plant and animal life left. And look here at this panel. The elder things are engineering new shuggaths that are larger and stronger than before. Hmm. You're right. They're even worse than the earlier ones. Yes, yes. See, they're preparing for a task of relocating their city to this subterranean sea here. They're leaving their slowly freezing city to return to this sunless sea and an abyss deep below. Then what? I can't really tell here. The quality of these carvings gets worse the further we go. I think the new sea cavern city survived. What about Lake's undamaged specimen, Professor? 
They... they could have been heading back When to... When we found them, those individuals could not have been less than 30 million years old. They would have lived in a time when this frozen wasteland was lush with tertiary vegetation and life. <laughs> but I'll admit, the same thoughts have gnawed me. Professor, look on this side. This is a map of the city. There's the river. So let's see, we entered the buildings about there. L look at this causeway. It leads down to... The Abyss. According to this map, it's probably less than a mile from here. We, we don't have much battery left for our torches. I'll turn mine off. We don't have much time. We need to get back to camp. We'll have to move quickly. Let's go. We threaded our dim way through the labyrinth with aid of map and compass, traversing rooms, clambering up and down ramps, over bridges. We were repeatedly tantalized by sculptured walls along the route, but pressed on, drawing ever closer to where we expected the tunnel's mouth to be. Stop. What is it? Do you smell that? What is it? It's the same smell as when we dug the things out of their graves at the lake's camp. Shine the light over there. What? Look! Look! At the rubble! I did not want to admit it. We had spent the day climbing over rubble which had laid undisturbed for countless millennia. Yet here a kind of swath had been made through the nearby debris. There was nothing clear nor definite, but in smoother places there was a suggestion of a heavy object having been dragged. We hurried along following the trail of movement until Danforth stopped me again. Look! It can't be. Those are sled tracks. That's... Gasoline. I told you I saw the thing's footprints in the snow. They're here. No, it's Gedney. He went mad, brought one of the sledges from camp. Turn off the lamp. Dim light filtered down through the collapsed upper stories of the building. Nearby were several arched doorways, one of which emanated the smell of gasoline. We crept forward, drawn by unbearable curiosity, and stepped into the next chamber. There's something there. Turn on the torch. Items littered the floor, all from Lake's camp. Mangled cans of food, spent matches, a spilled fuel can, odd scraps of cloth and fur, a broken fountain pen, ink, some illustrated books, the manual that came with the tent heater. <laughs> I, I tried to convince myself that, that Gedney, in a deranged mental state, might have brought these items, fumbling with them in his madness. But when we examined the papers there, that hope dimmed. Some were oddly blotted, like those I saw in Lake's dissection tent. And there were sketches, sketches like those Danforth and I had made, copying the contents of the murals. But these were executed with absolute assurance and perfection, with the unmistakable technique of the Elder Things. The creatures Lake's team had unearthed from the caves were not fossilized, not dead at all, but in some state of suspended animation. Now they were awake and on the move. Looking back, I can scarcely recall changing our objective. Certainly, we did not mean to face that or, or those which we knew had been there, but we decided to follow in their footsteps to the great circular place they had drawn on their maps. You were mad not to run for your lives. Perhaps we were mad. For have I not said those horrible peaks were mountains of madness? Half paralyzed with terror though we were, there fanned within us a blazing flame of awe and curiosity which triumphed in the end. After studying their sketches, we believed that the great round tower whose remains we'd seen from the aeroplane and which now lay ahead of us would provide us and, and them with a shortcut to the abyss below, a shortcut they had taken. 
We plunged ahead, well aware we were following in their path, as we regularly saw traces of their recent passage before us, and, and that dreadful smell lingered behind them. They led us to the circular place, and at last our tunnel opened onto a great cylindrical shaft some two hundred feet in diameter. Bright daylight streamed into the shaft, which plunged downward into darkness. Was it the opening to the abyss? So we thought. Archways like ours led into the shaft from different angles, and a titanic stone ramp wound spirally up the inside of the shaft, leading some sixty feet above us and downward to an unthinkable depth. The ramp was a marvel of construction and engineering, despite the ravages of the eons. We assumed the Elder Things had gone downward, and so began our descent. Stop. Look at that. What is it? There. It's just a... No, it's the sledges, all three of them. A little wear and tear, but they're in good shape. Well packed and strapped down. Supplies from Lake's camp. I can't get this strap to budge. Hand me that jackknife. Ah! Ah! What is it? Uh, oh, it's Gedney. Gedney. And the dog. Dead. Wrapped up. Clearly, Lake wasn't the only one collecting specimens. They wrapped him so delicately. What do we do with him? Cover him back up, we'll... What we heard was not the fabulous note of any buried blasphemy of Elder Earth. Rather, it was a sound mockingly familiar from our time at McMurdo Sound, the raucous squawking of a penguin. It came from a tunnel nearly opposite us and could only imply a nearness to water. We set out quickly to find the bird and follow it to the hidden sea. We hurried into the archway from which the sound had come. Sir, Lord Prince, they left their supplies and went scouting where they knew they were close to the... Torch! Torch! What? What? Where? There! A bulky white shape loomed ahead of us. We realized at once it was not one of the others, not as large or as dark, and it moved awkwardly. It's a damned penguin! You're right. Look at the size of the thing. It's taller than you. It's all white. No coloration, eyes atrophied to useless slits like a cave fish. It's evolved for life in... The abyss. We're getting close. It's warmer in here. Come on. We passed a flock of these bizarre penguins and moved down a steep uncarved tunnel into a massive dome-shaped chamber. Low archways opened all around it, but one black arched aperture opened to what we knew would be the abyss. These penguins don't seem bothered by us at all. The air in this tunnel's warmer still. Maybe there's a geothermal system. Maybe what Lake thought was a volcano's was a steam vent. It's possible that the underground ocean is warm. Come on. I wonder what else besides penguins lives down here. As we went down the tunnel, we could easily see the tracks of the others leading down and of penguins coming up. Carvings here were sparse, and after a time, the cyclopean masonry gave way and the tunnel was cut directly out of the rock. We noted some small lateral galleries not noted on our map and thought them welcome hiding places if the others returned from the abyss. I have to stop you, Professor. This was madness. Your exploration was suicidal. In retrospect, I agree. But the lure of the unplumbed is stronger than most of us suspect. 
It's what brought us to that unearthly polar waste in the first place. We descended perhaps a quarter of a mile before we came upon a careless heap of furs and tent cloth taken from Lake's camp. We shared an uneasy glance, but neither of us spoke. Not far past that point, the tunnel opened into a natural-looking cavern with many immense side passages leading away. Do you smell that? No, I, I don't smell them anymore. No, no, it's something else. Rot. Decay. Perhaps there's some kind of fungi or... Sir, look at the floor. It's so smooth. You're right. It's almost polished. Not even dust. Oh, strange. I don't like it. Shine your torch on the wall again, Danforth. Look, look at that. Their technique has degenerated. The other things didn't make this. The perspective's wrong. This is a bad imitation. A parody of their style. We moved on over the smooth-floored tunnels. The new odor was unbearably strong here, and, and puffs of visible vapor suggested we were very close to the sunless sea. And then, at last, we saw the Elder Things. Turn on the other torch. They're dead. It was clear they posed no threat. There were four of the Elder Things, as damaged and torn as the exhumed specimens at camp, although a dark green pool gathering beneath them suggested their demise was far more recent. We approached them slowly and reluctantly. I stared at them with a certain awe or reverence. What happened to them? I don't know. Some conflict with the other four? We shouldn't be here. Do you smell that? Danforth, look at the slime on their bodies. Their heads are gone, torn off, remember? In an instant it came back to us. The murals we'd seen depicting a viscous coating on the Elder Things who had fallen in battle to control the horrid Shuggaths. The dreadful sculptures depicted those things as formless protoplasm able to, to mock all forms of organs and processes, viscous masses of bubbling cells growing ever more sullen, more intelligent, and more malignant. As we saw the freshly glistening and iridescent black slime which clung to those headless bodies, and sparkled less voluminously on a smooth part of the resculptured wall in a series of grouped dots. We understood the quality of cosmic fear to its uttermost depths. No longer did we fear the missing elder things. After all, they, they were not evil things of their kind. They were men of another age and another order of being. Nature played a hellish jest on them, and this was their tragic homecoming. That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epic, perhaps an attack by furry, frantically barking quadrupeds and a day's defense against them and their equally frantic white simians with queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Ah, oh, poor Lake. Poor Gedney. And poor Elder Things. What had they done that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence. Radiates, vegetables, monstrosities, star spawn, whatever they had been, they were men. They crossed the icy peaks on whose slopes they had once roamed amongst the tree ferns. They found their dead city brooding under, under curse and read its carven latter days as we had done. They tried to reach their living fellows in the fabled depths of blackness that they had never seen, and, and what had they found? 
It seemed eons that we stood there, but it could not have been more than 10 or 15 seconds. Then Danforth turned the beam from his torch away, shining it into the mist which curled as if being driven by some advancing bulk. flight, knowing that the remaining Elder Things could be upon us instantly if they wished to do so. Still, we thankfully did not slacken our pace. The curling mist pushed through the passage behind us. The, the penguins shrieked in terror. We hoped somehow their chaotic noise and scurrying, combined with the multitude of openings that pervaded the place, might throw our pursuers off course. From an instinct of sheer primitive anxiety, both Danforth and I looked back, flashing our torches into the briefly thinned mist. And? My words could never really communicate the awfulness of the sight. We had expected to see a terrible and incredible moving entity if the mists were thin enough, but of that entity we had formed a clear idea. What we did see, for the mists were indeed all too malignly thinned, was something altogether different and immeasurably more hideous and detestable. Its nearest comprehensible analog is a vast, on-rushing subway train as one sees it from a station platform, the, the great black front looming colossally out of the infinite subterraneous distance constellated with strangely colored lights and filling the prodigious burrow with, as a piston fills a cylinder. But we were not on a station platform. We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its 15-foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, re-thickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapor. It, it was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train, a shapeless conjuries of protoplasmic bubbles forming and unforming as pustules that bore down on us, crushing the penguins and slithering over the floor it and its kind kept so free of debris. And still it, it bellowed its terrible, mocking cry. Professor, are you all right? The fact we survived is proof that the thing took a wrong gallery while fate led us to the right one. We ran and ran, past the abandoned sledges, eventually up the great stone ramp leading us to a level above the city, above the ice sheet. Out of the structures the Antarctic cold bit into us. We did not speak what words would or could suffice. Danforth muttered under his breath as we climbed out of the great tower's base and headed back into the labyrinthine city. I, I strained to make out the repetitive phrase he murmured under his breath. Washington under, Park Street under, Kendall, Central, Harvard. The poor fellow was chanting the stations of the Boston-Cambridge Tunnel that burrowed through our distant homeland in a desperate effort to calm his mind. As swiftly as we could, we left the place, climbing the steep slope to where we'd left the aeroplane. Halfway uphill, we paused to catch our breath and turned to look again at the fantastic Paleogean tangle of incredible stone shapes below us. There now lay revealed on the ultimate white horizon behind the city a dim, elfin line of pinnacled violet whose needle-pointed heights loomed dreamlike against the beckoning rose color of the western sky. For a second, we gasped in admiration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls for this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living thing of the Earth. We were the first human beings ever to see them. I hope to God we may be the last. 
Even in his rattled state, Danforth was able to get the plane aloft and climb to the altitude of the pass. As we grew close to the jutting peaks, the wind's strange piping became manifest. Danforth, you, you're shaking. I'll take the controls for a bit, if you like. Hmm? Why not? Yes. Relax my nerves. Relax. We're safe here. Huh? We had nearly cleared the past summit when Danforth shrieked so terribly and grabbed me with such force that I fumbled with the controls, nearly crashing the plane. He never spoke to me of what final horror caused him to scream so, but I have no doubt it was the cause of his present breakdown and hospitalization. As we approached Lake's campsite, he gathered some composure. A pact. We must make a pact. Pact? You and me. We'll never speak of what we saw today. The photos, the drawings, no one sees them. None of it. But we should warn the others about what... Never! Swear it! I hesitated briefly, but realized he was right. What we saw should never have been seen. The sanest course would be to forget it all. I swear. I have stood by that oath until now. And I would not speak of these things were it not for the need of heading off that Starkweather Moor expedition and others at any cost. It is absolutely necessary for the peace and safety of mankind that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be left alone, lest sleeping abnormalities wake to resurgent life and blasphemously surviving nightmares squire and splash out of their black lairs to newer and wider conquests. Your case is compelling, Professor, and no doubt your photos and drawings combined with your telling of the full story will give pause to such exploration. One last question. What did he see from the plane that disturbed him so deeply? Before he went to the sanitarium, all he would tell me was that it was a mirage. A single, fantastic, demonic glimpse of those other westward mountains that the elder things shunned and feared. But it was so real to Danforth that he suffers from it still. He's spoken to me in whispers of the proto-shuggaths, the nameless cylinder, the Migo, and whispers in the darkness and other bizarre occult concepts. But at that moment, on the aeroplane, his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single mad word of a, an all-too-obvious source. Tekalili. Tekalili. You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, brought to you by our sponsor, Florida Lee. The cigarette that's never parched or toasted. Florida Lee, made fresh and kept fresh. Until next week, this is Chester Langfield reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look and save the last bullet for yourself. At the Mountains of Madness was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble features Sean Branny, Seth Compton, Matt Foyer, Andrew Lehman, Barry Lynch, David Mersault, Josh Temke, and Noah Wagner. Tune in next week for The Forbidden Gateway, an all-new Nate Ward adventure. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated. Copyright 1931, plus 75.